Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In a trio of 1950s Seminole War films, Hollywood takes the war, if not history, to the Everglades. Listeners to this Seminole Wars podcast understand the rich, scenic, cinematic possibilities in telling the story of this long, Florida-based conflict. The filmmakers in Hollywood did too, back in the 1950s anyway. Distant Drums, Seminole, and Naked in the Sun are three films taking some aspect of the war and presenting a fanciful view with great liberties to tell a compelling narrative. Yellowneck, a fourth film in which we might dub a seminal swamp series of movies, focuses on Confederate Army deserters trudging through the Everglades and meeting hostile Seminoles as they pass through their reservation to the Florida coast. Two other films, set in the West, Seminole Uprising and War Arrow, portrayed the Seminoles in Oklahoma and Texas as antagonistic or supporting of U.S. Army endeavors. Although they feature actors purportedly playing Seminoles, the plots of either film could have proceeded without trouble had any other American tribe been selected. We'll make passing reference to these films, but nothing more. In this episode, autodidact and cinephile Jesse Marshall returns to give us the rundown on the good, the bad, and the ugly of these films, with greatest focus on the three films actually set in the Seminole Wars. They feature journeyman actors, but also some genuine box office superstars. Gary Cooper, Rock Hudson, Anthony Quinn. None were great films, but they all harbored some redeeming value. Jesse Marshall explains why, and also why Hollywood hasn't made a good Seminole Wars film in nearly three quarters of a century. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Glad to be back. Jesse, tell us about the second Seminole War and how Hollywood has portrayed it, at least in the 1950s when it was still making movies about it. Well, so far as I know, the Seminole War pictures in Hollywood were primarily products of the 1950s, and they developed out of a general interest in Westerns. And so there's sort of a subgenre of the Western genre uh, with swamps, Westerns with swamps, or uh, Southerns, if you will, because some of the pictures they did produce had some vague references to the American South, but generally these these are Basically, Indian Wars-type movies, like uh, any of the horse operas uh, you know, of that time period, we have to remember that probably the best of those cavalry films might be John Ford's pictures in the late 40s and 50s, Ford Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. By no means were any of the Seminole War movies quite so well done or as dramatic, but they are a part of that whole money-making genre of the 50s. They used a lot of the same tropes, and they used a lot of the same directors, and uh, probably even crew and actors. But again, they just transferred the action from the western deserts, foothills, to the swamps of Florida. Our focus is on our focus is on Hollywood movies that take place in Florida, supposedly during the Seminole Wars. However, Hollywood did make westerns 
in the West featuring Seminoles. One of those was Seminole Uprising. What was that about? Mid-1950s, it's a typical cavalry-type picture from the period, but quite honestly, it's not one that I've watched more than a couple of times. In my mind, rather forgettable. It's set out West. It regards Seminoles that are in the West in the Civil War or post-Civil War period. Seminole Uprising in War Arrow take place in the Texas region and have little to nothing to do with the Seminole Wars, besides having an Indian tribe that they call the Seminoles. We'll set that aside as a curiosity. There are three primary Hollywood films that take place during the Second Seminole War. You dub this a trilogy, although they're not really related to each other in story or plot. The ones that I've watched multiple times are the trilogy, if you will, of swamp seminal pictures of the 50s. Those are the ones which I'm personally more interested in and know more about because I've actually watched them with greater interest. Seminole Uprising and War Arrow are interesting movies, don't get me wrong, but I have seen them. But in my mind, they're using the Seminole as just a, you know, they need to have a tribe, they need to have a story. Seminole Uprising is otherwise, though, not any different than most Western, you know, B-pictures. But the advantage of the Swamp Seminole movies of the 50s is that they actually are related to the Second Seminole War, and those are the ones that I'm particularly more interested in. Either of those pictures, you could have used any tribe. The tribe picked it in those movies. It wouldn't have changed them particularly. But the Florida pictures, you couldn't have, you know, it would have been as ridiculous as the movies are. They would have been even far more ridiculous had they claimed, for example, that the movie Seminole uh, depicted the Choctaw in the Everglades or, or something to that effect. I prefer to look at the trilogy of 1950s Second Seminole War movies. And what are the names of those three movies? They are Distant Drums in 1951, Seminole a couple of years later, around 1953, and near the end of the decade, I believe, 1957, you have Naked in the Sun. All three of these pictures relate to what we call the Second Seminole War of 1835 to 1842. Taking them all together, there is a depiction of... Dade's Battle of December 28, 1835, the only cinematic version of that battle to date, although there are some excellent documentaries, most notably the 1990s production that is uh, still shown at the Dade Battlefield. But by and large, each of the movies is based on a fictional storyline with fictional characters, although set during the Second Seminole War and to a greater or lesser degree filmed in Florida. So each of the pictures, because it's based on an actual war, and it does seem to be the vaguest suggestion in watching these movies that the screenwriters may have actually read something regarding the Seminole Wars. They do have references to actual incidents and characters. For example, in Distant Drums with Gary Cooper, probably the most entertaining and the highest budget of these pictures. It was the first one to come out, again, around 1951, directed by Raoul Walsh and starring Gary Cooper. So in itself, that was a, would have been a box office draw. Distant Drums is kind of a remake of Raoul Walsh's earlier picture, Objective Burma, which had starred Errol Flynn as an air commando officer in the Second World War, leading a elite group behind Japanese lines in Burma. Changed the setting to the Florida Everglades in 1840, where Captain Quincy Wyatt, portrayed by Gary Cooper, is sent behind Seminole Line into the Everglades to destroy a Spanish gunrunner's fort managed by pirates, and the plot lines are virtually identical. 
But the distinction is, on the historical level, Distant Drum does feature an appearance by an actor portraying General Zachary Taylor, later President of the United States. And it's interesting to see him portrayed as an extraordinarily friendly general with a smile on his face and a slap on the back for every time he sees Quincy Wyatt through his adventures. Uh, one wonders if, if Old Rough and Ready were quite so courteous in reality. We have a few anecdotes about Taylor in Florida that don't show him in quite the same light that the movie does. Namely, that Taylor is shown in the movie wearing a uniform of an army general, although it's a Civil War era general's uniform. But most accounts agree that Taylor generally didn't wear any kind of uniform, for the most part, dressed as a farmer. Jesse, talk a little more about uniforms of that period. Well, one of the interesting things about the Florida War was the U.S. Army had an ornate European-style uniform at the time, and it was completely useless for the conditions in the Florida Territory during the campaigns. And many of the officers, including Captain George McCall, mentioned that the uniform generally wasn't worn. So in the picture, Distant Drums, Gary Cooper portrays apparently a regular Army officer who has sort of gone native, to use an old term, and he has intermarried with a Creek princess and has a child, and he lives on an island in the middle of the swamps of Florida called Quincy's Island. They even curiously show you a map in the course of the movie to give you an idea of where he is, isolated in the Florida wilderness. But now that this special mission has been devised by General Taylor, only Quincy Wyatt can carry it out because he is a strange combination of soldier and swamp man. He uh, then organizes a company of troops for this mission, and they carry it out with great aplomb, setting fire to the Everglades along the way, exploding Fort Infanta, a mythological gunrunner's fort, which, for which Fort Marion, or the Castillo de San Marcos and San Augustine, stood in for. In fact, the last time I visited the Castillo, I was sure to look up a couple of the spots that feature in the movie where Gary Cooper took cover on one of the ramps to fire at the pirates charging across the parade. This movie did not always cling to the historical record. What are some howlers that you noticed? Well, uh, rubber snakes, the alligators I won't comment on. They seem to use if They have the typical animal sounds that you see in almost every Tarzan picture. They did film it in Florida, and that is a good thing. And it's actually uh, interesting to watch the setting unfold in the Everglades and in the swamp, in Cypress Swamp. There are Indian mounds depicted, which aren't quite, but more like deep filled earth that the production put up. So it's evident there that they were not aware what an Indian mound in Florida looked like. The Seminoles are depicted in the film as co-equal with the Spanish pirates that had been arming them. They're led by a young war leader named Chief Ocala. Uh, one would assume this is sort of a an offset of Osceola. At the end of the picture, there's a tremendous hand-to-hand -hand battle between Captain Wyatt and this mythical chief, uh, fictional chief, both of them fictional, of course, in which Wyatt comes out the winner when it comes down to this hand-to-hand -hand battle. The subplots of the picture include mainly the rescue from Fort Infanta of a young lady, a couple of other civilians who had been captured by the pirates. Quincy Wyatt and hers strike up something of a romance, and there's a slight subplot that she's not who she claims to be. She portrays herself as genteel when she may not be so genteel. And here's Quincy Wyatt, a man of some gentility, a gentleman, an officer and a gentleman, yet who 
has completely eschewed it to live as a frontiersman in the Florida wilds. And so they sort of strike up conversation based on the assumed identities that they have taken on in the Florida wilds. But by and large, it's a war picture. It follows all the common modes of the cavalry westerns, except in a swamp, meaning in a swamp. And on that score, it isn't too bad. Uniforms and equipment are necessarily quite anachronistic for the 1840 period. The weapons are all post-Civil War trapdoor Springfield carbines and rifles. Even the Seminoles are armed with them. Captain Wyatt is armed with, if I recall correctly, a typical Colt post-Civil War Colt peacemaker cartridge-loaded revolver, which he uses in several scenes to cover the rear guard. There's also a marvelous scene where he orders his troops to build canoes by chopping down cypress trees. And although time lapse is, of course, quite common in a movie with scene cutting, there's the suggestion that his troops were able to hollow out the dugouts and paddle away with them within a couple of hours something that, of course, would have taken a considerably longer period of time to do. (laughs) And one of the key scenes is some of uh, Wyatt's men captured by the Seminoles were executed and finds a pit in the Seminole village with alligators in it with a hat floating with them. So Wyatt and his men are outraged, of course, at this fate that befell their men. So unearthly fates await those that fall behind in this secret mission. At the end of the picture, Wyatt redeems himself by killing Chief Ocala. Zachary Taylor's troops arrive just in the nick of time, although they're not mounted, and drive off the remainder. And Quincy's Island has been sacked, and Wyatt is concerned that his young son who was there was among the slain, but he turns up in good health at the end, and everyone's smiling and happy as the credits roll. So that was 1951's Distant Drums. Granted, they took some historical license, but could the events of Distant Drums have actually taken place in the Seminole Wars? When you read Sprague's Florida War in 1848, or even George McCall's Letters from the Frontiers, the settings, the most dramatic elements of both of those Seminole War veterans' works relate to small company-sized patrolling commands moving at will through the Florida wilderness and even the Everglades, you know, 30 or 40-man companies. That's pretty interesting and potentially dramatic stuff, although none of the missions of the actual war quite transpired the way this movie sets out. The next one up stars someone who is a big box office name back in the day, Rock Hudson. Tell us about that. So the next one that's notable was a couple of years later, directed by Bud Boddicker, who also is well known as a Western director of B-movies, and it's called Seminole. If anyone was confused by Distant Drums, where it was set, they're not confused by Seminole, 1953. It stars Rock Hudson as a young army officer, dispatched to the Florida Territory at the eve of the opening of the Second Seminole War. In the storyline, he is a a youthful friend of Osceola, portrayed by Anthony Quinn. One of the curiosities of the picture is that Quinn's Osceola had been raised uh, among Americans and, and had even some military training in his past, none of which is true. But in the picture, Osceola is shown largely as a sort of a man without a country, torn between being the a principal leader of his people's resistance to the United States, but also having significant interaction with Americans and friendship with Rock Hudson's character. Hudson's character is placed in a unit under a military officer who is determined upon personal distinction at any cost, 
and he leads his men in a forlorn expedition through the Florida swamps to attack the Seminoles swamp village and in one of the only battle scenes actually in the picture the troops rush out of their cover and are shot apart and stricken by arrows one of the notable characters in the picture is the indomitable sergeant of the military command portrayed by a relatively young Lee Marvin. Military expedition is defeated and the commander is somewhat disgraced. Rock Hudson and his compatriots are driven back to their fort. The end of the picture comes with sort of a uh, anticlimactic ending where Osceola is imprisoned in the fort and he's actually murdered by a fellow Seminole who is bent upon leading the Seminoles into war with the white man. And so Seminole is an interesting picture because it portrays the two good guys or the young lieutenant and Osceola who were trying to bridge the gap and prevent war to an extent. And the bad guys, essentially, one of them is the military commander, and the other bad guy is the more radical Seminole leader, both bent upon war. It's sort of interesting in that sense, because it transcends the common cowboys and Indians themes of even many Western pictures. The film suffers to a certain extent. The more interesting scenes, the expedition scenes, are clearly filmed in sound stages, so the swamps are somewhat inconvincing, although in some of those scenes, but... And that portion of the movie is in the center of it, the second act, I suppose, so that the third act sort of falls a little bit flat. In distant drums, the soldiers are largely wearing military surplus and Western cavalry equipment, so they're not dressed dissimilarly from any Western cowboy film. There are soldiers in the background wearing uniforms similar to Mexican War-era dragoons, but they're depicting Wyatt and his swamp company as swamp men, and so they're just wearing the common blue shirt you see in most cavalry pictures and a campaign hat. In Seminole, there was a more of an attempt to dress the soldiers, costume them to the period. They're wearing sky blue jackets and trousers with the correct trim to a certain degree, although a little bit fanciful. But they're wearing, instead of the leather forage cap, they're wearing a shako with a sky blue suit, which is not at all quite accurate. I'm actually kind of impressed by that because it wasn't really until the 1970s with the construction of Fort Foster and state of Florida employed Michael Sheen, young historian, to figure out exactly what was the uniform and equipment of U.S. soldiers in the Seminole War, that many issues regarding uniform were worked out, namely that the sky blue uniform that we see generally depicted is not really a uniform at all. That's the fatigue dress of the army versus the uniform. So in the movie Seminole, they kind of mix the two up. So they're wearing something similar to the uniform, but it's It includes a sky blue jacket like the fatigue dress. So it's kind of in there. And I will say this. There are shots in the movie where even though they're using trapdoor rifles, post-Civil War reach loaders, uh, there is some scenes where I'm pretty sure I can see the guys using the cleaning rods and pushing them up and down in the barrel as if they're using them as a ramrod. They at least went that far picture sort of light on action. It's somewhat more of a morality tale than it is a war movie or in a Western. You've seen these themes in other movies where people are struggling to prevent the outbreak of violence between the United States or the particular tribe. Seminole 1953 is an example of that. It has its dramatic moments. They're all overwrought and it's almost all fictional. You called a movie a few minutes ago, a B-movie. What is a B-movie? 
Before the 1970s, we had a very fixed industry in Hollywood. The studios had an enormous amount of control over the content that was produced. And the actors often worked on contract. And actors whose pictures made a lot of money for the studios, obviously they would go up the chain, as it were, and get into better movies. And if they reached a point where they were headliners, then that continued to be headliners. Gary Cooper was a headliner for a long time, although he had a long decline. You know, it's some people's opinion. But Distant Drums used a director that had done a lot of movies. Some people might argue that many of Raoul Walsh's pictures are B pictures, but so far as that goes, they were they turned out very well. Or they don't show obvious signs of weak production. The music is usually well done, often in Technicolor. A pictures, Technicolor was the technology of the time. Also, there's black and white movies as well. The Longest Day was done in black and white in 1960 or 61. Uh, and many people were a little disappointed about that, but it was a huge production and no one considered that it hurt the movie. In fact, it probably helped it in the sense that Many of the people that watched The Longest Day 20 years earlier had watched the war at home through black and white newsreel footage that was shown in their local theaters. And so watching, you know, a lot of the same scenes reconstructed in the movie Longest Day in black and white was probably not a disappointment per se, but Technicolor was expensive and it was a difficult process. It required using powerful lighting on stage, particularly in order to to draw out the color and everything to show. I'm not capable of describing the science behind it, but I know that it was the key process that and that was popularly used at the time. The colors will be very vibrant, for example. There were other options for filmmakers. There was a process called True Color, which was not so successful as Technicolor. It was marketed to filmmakers. Unfortunately, the results of the true color process, while it does make a color movie, the results are not vibrant at all. I wouldn't describe it as vibrant color. It actually is a terribly muted color, at least in terms of the, the movies that I've seen in recent years that marketed themselves as true color productions. That comes to two of the, the final of the trilogy of Second Summer War pictures, Naked in the Sun from 1957. What was Naked in the Sun all about? Naked in the Sun is based on a novel by Frank Slaughter. I believe it was titled The Warrior. And Mr. Slaughter was a prolific author of historical fiction. R. John Hugh, a Florida-based filmmaker, used the novel as the basis for Naked in the Sun. And that is the picture that also depicts Osceola in it. We saw in Seminole that Anthony Quinn's Osceola is a sympathetic character. And we see he's even more a sympathetic character in Naked in the Sun. In fact, he's the main character in the picture. However, they do change a lot of things. It's based on a novel. We understand, or we're given to understand, that the name Asiahola, spelled Asiola in most American texts, had a meaning in the native language, which was something like the black drink singer. Of course, in the movie, it stated he is the rising sun. How did they present the Seminoles in this movie? The Seminoles, as depicted, have a lot of cheap feathers I just, you know, perhaps it's the true color process, but the, the colors are a little bit odd. They don't look particularly natural, but the costuming is relatively cheap. In the picture, Osceola is depicted as living an idyllic life in the Florida wilderness until American slave catchers intervene in his situation and, and kidnap his wife. 
the slave catchers are working with a American Indian agent who obviously is based on General Wiley Thompson, the American Indian agent at the time the Seminole War broke out. The slave catcher in Naked in the Sun bears a striking resemblance in temperament to Simon Legree, the evil slaveholder of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So there's a lot of similarity, and I've not read Frank Slaughter's novel, The Warrior, but I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't elements from Uncle Tom's Cabin related into the storyline. There is a depiction of the use of a bullwhip by the slave catcher character who gets his comeuppance later in the picture by Osceola. So in the meantime, we have a similar theme to Seminole, where Osceola is friends with Major Dade. And Osceola and Major Dade both want to avoid war, but the circumstances surrounding them propel both of them into this terrible conflict. There's even a slight suggestion that if Osceola had been able to join with the Seminole force that lay in ambush for Major Dade's command, that by some means, Osceola might have been able to prevent the bloodshed of Dade's battle. That's sort of suggested in the movie. But Dade's Battle is depicted in the film, although it takes all of about five minutes for the Seminole ambush to destroy the entire column and finish off Major Dade. The movie also, of course, depicts, uses a lot of the old tropes that were long seen. Dade's command is being guided by Pacheco, and Pacheco is shown as Turncoat, who essentially led the command into the ambush. Osceola is, is played by James Craig, and again, his character shoots the Indian agent in revenge and attacks Fort King. The Seminole War commences in earnest. The American military commander is portrayed almost like a British officer. Instead of General Clinch, they call him General Finch, and during the course of the film, they have a very brief sequence depicting some of the campaigns against the Seminoles, showing them dragging some of the exhausted soldiers from the swamps. At the conclusion of it, Osceola is captured under a white flag, and he is imprisoned and declines to escape when, when he has the chance, etc. becomes essentially the martyr of his people, and the film sort of fades out as, as he's portrayed as, as a tragic character in that sense. What is the most notable thing about Naked in the Sun? Most notable thing about the movie? Filmed in Florida, filmed near St. Cloud in part. The Fort King set was very impressive, and they burned it during the movie. There's a scene where they burned the fort. It's very impressive. They also used Fort Clinch in Fernandina as the fortress where Osceola is finally held at the close of the movie. Other than that, many people find it double-edged sword with this one because the movie does delve into many of the circumstances uh, surrounding the war. The Black Seminoles, any American slaves that might have been among them, and the conflicts between the Florida courts and the Seminoles and the U.S. War Department over how to handle that. But beyond that, it's largely a fictional story. Dade's battle did happen. Costume-wise, the Seminoles could have been done somewhat better, but it's, it is what it is. Uh, the military uniforms are very pretty close to the dress uniform of the Army in 1835. Not quite dead on, but relatively close. But again, it's not a uniform the troops would have been wearing generally in the swamps. They wore that on parade or fatigue dress when they were working or marching around, if even that. General Clinch of history becomes General Finch of the Hollywood imagination. Well, again, I've not read the novel by Frank Slaughter, but I would suspect that Frank Slaughter changed the names. But if he didn't, then that would be on the filmmaker, R. John Hugh. The director was no stranger to Florida. Mr. Hugh had done an earlier seminal picture. It's not a seminal war movie. 
A couple of years before Naked in the Sun, he had worked with a very small budget. In fact, he ran out of money when he was making it. Uh, he filmed a picture called Yellow Neck, a Civil War uh, film down in the Everglades. In fact, he filmed it partly on the Seminole Reservation. And during the course of that movie, it's about five Confederate deserters that are trying to make their way to South Florida to hitch a ride on a blockade runner to Cuba to get out of the war. And in their misadventures through the Everglades, they ended up crossing the Seminoles and engaging in a battle with the Seminoles, who are real Seminoles in the in the picture. The movie was a modest success, the sort of thing they would have thrown up on a double billing for a drive-in theaters and so forth. And so he got a contract with Republic Pictures. He financed Naked in the Sun, which is a much bigger production, but my understanding is it wasn't as financially successful. And in any case, Republic Pictures evidently went bust around the late 50s. And so Hugh didn't make that many more movies. The, the movies he did after that were not epic in scale and, and not particularly successful. It may be ironic, but of the movies that you're talking about today, Yellowneck is probably the best of the bunch. And it's not even a Seminole War movie. Strangely enough, Yellowneck is, again, not a Seminole War picture, but Civil War film. And I would have to agree with you. It's a set of circumstances that are quite bizarre. You know, a group of men who have fled the uh, Confederate Army after the Battle of Chickamauga, I believe they mentioned, and are trying to escape the war and have been somehow fooled into crossing the Everglades, if they can, and crossing the Seminoles on their way. But, of course, everything they meet in the Everglades is hostile to them. Every animal jumps out of a tree upon them. Every banana spider is trying to bite them. And I think more than a couple of them are eaten by alligators and die by quicksand. If they don't get you, the Seminoles will. <laughs> there were some Florida Seminoles who participated in the Civil War. That's true. The Confederates evidently even had an Indian agent to try to keep the Seminoles out of the war. Without going into too great detail, I believe that the Seminoles generally just felt the white men ought to fight it out among themselves. There was some concern among the Floridians that the Seminoles would join the war. Mr. C.T. Jenkins of uh, Homosassa, Florida, was a blockade runner during the war. And in his memoir, he mentions that the people on the South Florida coast were less worried about Union blockaders than they were about the Seminoles taking an opportunity to attack them from the inland, from the south. So it was still a concern about the Seminoles, but during the war, the Seminoles, by and large, stayed out of that conflict. And did I hear you right? The director cast actual Seminoles in those parts in the film? Yes, uh, again, as I understand, Yellowneck was filmed partly on one of the Seminole reservations in South Florida. One of the claims in the voluminous advertisements for the picture was that it was filmed during an actual hurricane. There are a couple of scenes that appear to be filmed outside of a glass window, or through a glass window that show a lot of trees blowing around. And so perhaps there was a hurricane during the production. I also seem to remember reading an anecdote some years back that the production of Yellowneck ran out of money and the actors in the film actually put money in to finish the picture. So I guess it's fitting that it probably is the best of the 19th century Seminole swamp movies, but again, it has nothing to do with the Second Seminole War. Okay, Yellowneck's the best of the Seminole swamp movies, but it's not a Seminole War movie. So of the three in the trilogy, which do you assess? being the best of the bunch. And I realize that may not be saying very much. 
of the three Second Seminole War pictures, I would unequivocally state that Distant Drums is the most entertaining. However, I find Naked in the Sun somewhat amusing. Again, it kind of follows more history in its fictionalization. I have nothing against the Boddicker film, Seminole, but it's not really an action-oriented movie. It doesn't have a, any kind of battle scene beyond the back on the Seminole Village scene. So a few movies in the 1950s, and then what? And that's pretty much what we have. Now, back in the 1980s, in 1985, there was a documentary done of the Dade Battle. I remember it being for sale at historical events around Florida. I've seen it a couple of times. It featured the reenactors. I don't know who produced it. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's about 45 minutes long. It features the late Dr. Ray Geron playing Captain Gardner of Dade's Command. Interestingly, I believe that most of the footage that is shown in that production, which is sort of a docudrama because they do have some vignettes where the reenactors are acting parts, I believe it was filmed mainly at the 1985 Dade Battle reenactment, which was one of the first full-scale reenactments of the battle at the park. 10 or 15 years later, in the late 90s, a documentary was filmed over a period of a couple of years at the Dade Battle reenactment, and they produced the documentary on Dade's Battle, This Land, These Men, which is narrated by Frank Laumer. A truncated version of that picture is shown currently at the Dade Battlefield Visitor Center. Why did Hollywood stop making movies related to the Seminole Wars? They weren't making any money. They weren't making any money. My understanding, and maybe entirely incorrect, but Hollywood as an industry reacts to the public's interest. Civil War movies have been a big stake in Hollywood since its beginning. Gone with the Wind, I believe, is still the highest grossing movie if you adjust the dollar for inflation. So that's an indicator to Hollywood. You put Civil War themes in pictures and you get some automatic interest for whatever reasons. So the Westerns had an equal draw being, you know, in a way they're sort of depicting for you. If you live out West, I can really imagine that your surroundings in a past time with the pioneers and so forth. And to see it manifested in a movie is interesting. It's been a big part of the way Hollywood and the Western works. So we have these Florida pictures. They're all from the 50s. And the immediate question that comes to my mind about them is is, is why. I was talking to a friend of mine who said that he saw some of these movies when he was a kid before the family moved to Florida. And they actually frightened him. And he thought Florida is just a danger zone. (laughs) When he thought of Florida, he thought of these movies. And I realized something, you know. Florida was really only developing in the 50s, namely with air conditioning when the the average family wouldn't want to live here during the summer. But you had air conditioning and and you can see the boom in population that's transpired since then. So what these pictures are depicting is essentially a Hollywood version of pre-air conditioning Florida with banana spiders, rubber snakes quicksand. I'm sure you could go through all three pictures and see that swamps feature mightily. And of course, there's that age-old trope of swampland in Florida being for sale. So when you see movies like Distant Drums and so forth, and they feature swamps somewhere in them, a lot of the swampland has been reclaimed since the 50s even. And we have agencies like Swift Mud that are 
even trying to restore some of these swamps today. The pictures, they were an attempt to connect a wider audience to Florida and its history. To what extent they were successful, I can't say. I will say this, that during the 50s, after the Seminole and Distant Drums came out, there was a, not particularly successful, but evidently popular for a brief period, Florida Aflame, the drama of the Seminoles, was a pageant that was put on at Philippi Park in Pinellas County over a period of time. It was partially funded by Pinellas County, and it was something to attract tourist interest. They had an amphitheater set up. They had military uniforms and the garb to dress out the Seminoles, although the still images I've seen from the production, it's somewhat fanciful. I believe it also depicted essentially Osceola and his conflict with the Americans and his capture under a white flag, which is something that's, again, featured heavily in Seminole and Naked in the Sun as well, these pictures. By 1955-56, I believe that the production had closed. I've seen newspaper references that Pinellas County had a large stock of the costumes and equipages left over and didn't know what to do with them at one point in the late 50s, early 60s. I'd be curious to know perhaps if some of it didn't end up in R. John Hughes' production of Naked in the Sun a year or two later. I wouldn't be surprised, not certain about that. The comment that I have heard, however, from many people who have read Frank Lammer's book Massacre, the 1968 version, I've heard more than one person, many of them simply laymen, comment that it would make an excellent movie, and perhaps it would. And I could see that the storyline could work uh, along those lines. Mr. Lowen's later book, Day's Last Command, is much more filled with detail and more analytical, and so the storyline itself suffers to some degree. But Massacre is a still popular book, I think, uh, in the sense that it's a narrative history and enjoyable to read. Even if some of the details in it Mr. Lowen later altered from further research up into the 1990s. What could we expect if Hollywood decides to make Seminole War movies again? You think they'd be better? Oh, goodness. Uh, so that's an excellent point, Patrick, because we talk about the movies that could be made, but there already are movies, and we assume that they'll make better Seminole War movies, and that's not necessarily the case. We don't know that. <laughs> I remember several years ago, I had some friends that thought there were going to be some really great Star Wars movies coming out, and years afterwards, I find that they didn't find them as good as the ones from the 70s. So be careful what you ask for. So among the films that we do have, I would recommend Distant Drums for pure entertainment value. It has some of the hokiest stuff you can imagine in it, but it's also combined with action scenes that are relatively well done. And Gary Cooper, of course, is a very talented actor and charismatic. You can see he's got years of Hollywood experience the way he fires his six-gun, you know, with a quick flick of the wrist for maximum dramatic effect. Uh, <laughs> I would recommend Naked in the Sun for those that are that are tired of entertaining movies. Naked in the Sun, it's filmed in true color, exciting true color, but the process did not do the movie any favors. It's a very dark and shadowy kind of production. Lawrence Rosenthal, by the way, did the music for Naked in the Sun. And I believe he did music for a lot of pictures and TV movies up through the 80s. Uh, I remember seeing his name attached to a shootout in Miami in the line of duty, late 80s TV movie uh, regarding the FBI shootout in Miami in the mid 80s. 
And I noticed that Mr. Rosenthal did the music for that one, although it sounded like an electronic synthesizer. But back in the 50s, he did the music for Naked in the Sun, which actually isn't that bad. And the music's probably better than the rest of the movie combined. But because Naked in the Sun, it's about Osceola, and because it's based on a mainstream novel, it has a narrative flow that makes sense, even if it's not historically accurate. I'd just like to mention that, you know, beyond the movies themselves, we have, I mentioned the Florida Flame drama of the Seminoles pageant that lasted for maybe a year, maybe two. And since the mid-80s, Frank Laumer went through a great deal of effort to put on the annual Dade's Battle reenactment at the Dade Battlefield State Historic Park in Bushnell. And Mr. Laumer would portray Ransom Clark. Well, reenactors generally are not actors. Reenactors enact the drills of the soldiers. They wear their uniforms, how to load the musket, how to fire the musket. They don't necessarily take on the persona and then project it to the public. Some reenactors can do that, nothing against that, but most reenactors don't. They're content to simply enact something of the past to the extent that they are capable. Mr. Laumer at the date event had himself and others portraying veterans of the battle and they speak about the battle while the reenactment is going on and quite frankly i've always found that to be an advantage to the date battle reenactment rather than a, a simple enactment without context the audience at the same time they're watching the action have the essentially a debate between a seminal protagonist and a ransom clark as a protagonist discussing this battle uh, back and forth essentially as the action is unfolded or reenacted in front of the audience it seems to have been very successful and it's essentially cinematic and in fact the state park has even constructed a viewing mound in the back of the park where the reenactment is held to make that to make it more more accessible to view to the public. So the Dade Battle reenactment has that cinematic sense to it in that in that way. That's essentially what we have. I wouldn't say that the Dade Battle reenactment, however, is inspired by any of the movies that we've discussed. I would say it's essentially inspired by Mr. Laumer's researches and interests and for many decades promoting the Dade Battlefield Park as a principal historical site in the South and in Central Florida. One can find some YouTube posts for various reenactments at the Dade Battlefield Park. You can go on YouTube today and you see a dozen or more. You can look up Dade's Massacre reenactment or Dade's Battle reenactment and you'll see many people have filmed it and put it on YouTube. Slight editing, it usually comes out with a certain amount of interest. Of course, the reenactors, many of them have reenacted the battle dozens and dozens of times over the last 35 or more years, and so they don't need any particular instruction about what to do any longer. Eventually, of course, the reenactors might get it right, because one of the interesting things about reenacting is you can reenact the same thing for 20 years every year, but it'll never come out quite the same way. That's one of the reasons why reenacting is something that attracts its partakers to engage in it over a multi-year period, because each reenactment in itself, something, even if the scenario is entirely the same and the reenactors are the same, it never quite works out the same way. Of course, Major Dade and his command in 1835, they didn't have the chance to have a second go at the battle. They only had the one chance, and of course it turned out to be quite deadly for all but a few of his command. Reenacting can take what we consider to be a cinematic approach, but reenacting and movies are distinctly different mediums. You know, I want to be fair to the movies. I'm not going to say that they're terrible pictures because 
I will accept the claim that artwork is subjective, and I will recognize that each movie is essentially a, a creative collaboration between the actors, the crew, and the director, and the producers, and the screenwriters, and they all put a lot of effort into them, and so the, the films are what they are, but they're not historical in themselves. They're just set in a historical time period. If you want to actually view one of these movies, what are some ways you can do it? I'm pretty sure that Distant Drums is on DVD. Distant Drum and Seminal are both available on DVD. You can find Yellow Neck and Naked in the Sun, but they're more difficult. You can find all of them to view on YouTube, however. When I watch these movies, I largely imagine how much better they could be. But at the same time, I'm only imagining it in terms of what I've seen at reenactments. And reenactments are not historical either in themselves. So that's where the storylines would come in. I'm not really a critic of using fictional storylines for historical movies because movies aren't history. My inclination is therefore not to be particularly critical because I don't see much point in it. If someone wants to know about the Seminole Wars, they won't learn much about them by watching the movies. In fact, if people want to learn about World War II, they probably wouldn't learn much about it by watching World War II movies either because movies are... They are what they are. They're a form of entertainment, and it's an industry in itself. It has its own prerogatives and methods, and that transcends interest. So to the extent that uh, reenactments are propelled by movies, for example, movie Gettysburg and Glory, when those came out in the late 80s and early 90s, a lot of people got into reenacting and fired by those pictures. But I wouldn't say that I've met anyone in the last almost 30 years of Seminole War reenacting I don't believe I've ever met anyone that says that they're desperate to get involved in Seminole War reenacting because they saw Naked in the Sun or Seminole or Distant Drums. And yet, on the other hand, many people who see the reenactments wish they could see a reputable cinematic treatment of the Dades battle. We'll have to leave it there. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Well, thank you, Patrick. You have a good one. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.